Titus chapter 3, verse 8. Um, the scriptures have a wonderful, wonderful technique um, that it uses, the writers use, to make certain that those of us who are the readers of the scripture cannot miss the point. It is called the technique of repetition. All right? Over and over again. In fact, if you've read through Titus, you're getting the point by now. But here is the point that Paul has been trying to make to Titus, to the church for these last several weeks. So just for, for fun, go back to chapter 1, verse 1. And we're going to kind of work our way through what we've seen so far. Just a couple of snapshots so that we can't miss this repetition and this theme that Paul has. So here's how he starts, verse 1. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ... Now, we told you the first week, this is the theme, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. So in Paul's mind, he's connected faith that saves us and godliness, the outcome, and he puts them together in that very first phrase. Now look at chapter 2, verse 1. Talking to Titus, Paul says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. In other words, teach the life change that sound doctrine brings. Teach the gospel. The gospel always changes people. Not, not just takes them from, from hell to heaven, but it transforms the human life and the human heart. So teach what accords with sound doctrine. So look at chapter uh, 2, verse 14. We saw this a couple of weeks ago. Speaking of Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possessions who are zealous for what? Good works. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Again, to Titus, remind the people, the church, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, and to be ready for every what? Good work. What is Paul trying to say, church? <laughs> it's hard to miss, isn't it? Let me just give you a snapshot. Church, excel at good works. The words that he uses are be zealous for it, uh, model these good works, be careful to it. We'll see today, devote ourselves to these good works, be ready for good works. Over and over again, three small chapters, Paul just keeps the gas down on this idea of good works. It's impossible to, to miss what he's saying here. In, in fact, let me rephrase it so we can't miss it. It's as if Paul says, church, it's not enough to just revel in your salvation. You need to replicate your Savior. That, that's what God's doing in the church. Not just saving a people. He's changing a people. Amen? And that's what this whole letter is about to us and specifically this topic of good works. And in Paul's mind, the motivation is unbelievable and powerful. It is the free gift of God's grace. He just, in his mercy, gives to sinners who don't deserve. That's how this whole thing happens for us. So today we have one very simple task. We're dealing with one verse, verse 8. And if you're one of those people who says, great, we got out of here early, I've invented some other things to say. So uh, we're here for the whole morning. Um, Again, in verse 8, Paul just repeats his theme about good works coming out of the life of a believer. And if you're one of those people who gets tired of repetition and you're asking God to change the channel, then maybe this is one of those particular uh, subjects that God won't change until we get the subject. Isn't that true? You're, you're, if you're a parent, how often do you repeat yourself? Long enough till they get it, right? So God does that with his children too. He just keeps coming at us. So maybe that's like this for us. Um, and if we stop for a second, let's say I gave you a homework assignment. And I said, okay, I want you to go out based on your discernment and, and your perspective in the world, your understanding of the church. And I want you to come back with a report and tell me how we're doing. 
How's the church doing? Not, not Redemption Gilbert, the church. How's the, how's the church holding up out there? How are we behaving? How are we living? Are, is our life connected to our doctrine? Do we live what we say or do we talk a game we don't play? What would you come to conclusion? Now, my guess, the cynical side of me, would be we'd get a report back something like reality. Good some places, very inconsistent. It shouldn't surprise us, by the way, because if you have ever read the scriptures before, you end up in uh, Revelation where Jesus is making assessment of the churches, right? Two chapters, chapter two and chapter three of Revelation, and it isn't pretty. Let me just remind you of a couple of things that Jesus noticed about the churches then. In Ephesus, he says this. Now, this is the positive before the zinger. <laughs> You're doing many things, many things, but from the wrong place because you've lost your first love. To the church in Pergamum, I see you don't deny the faith. I mean, you're not walking away from me. You claim a gospel. You claim a savior. I got it. But you're entertaining false teaching. Church, you're, you're entertaining people who are lying about me and about the truth and about the gospel. And so you're, you're dancing with the devil a little bit. He makes the assessment of Thyatira where he says, I see your love and I see your faith and I see your service. Sounds like a good description of a church. But here's what he says. You're tolerating sin. I mean, it's in, it's in your body. And you're not caring about it. You, you think you can just do these good things and just ignore the bad things. Church in Sardis, he says, you've got a reputation. I mean, when people talk about you, Sardis, they say you're alive. But I know the real you and you're dead. That's what I see. To the church in Laodicea, he says, you're like a flat soda pop. You're lukewarm. You got no point. I mean, you got a banner over the building, but there's no fire in the furnace, right? There's no life. There's nothing there. And that's what Jesus says of the church when he's assessing the health and, the, and kind of the, where, the spiritual whereabouts of Christians. And I don't mean to be too cynical, but I, I doubt if the assessment today would be much different about our intentions, our motives, what we, what we get close to, what we tolerate, what, we're, what we accept. We're just kind of in that, in that place. Now, here's what Paul says to Titus, therefore to us. Over and over and over and over again, don't grow weary striving for good because that's what God saved you for. He saved you to change you and change you to make a difference in this world. So go that way and don't ever quit. So here's what we're going to do today. My task is pretty simple. We're going to just unpack verse 8. It won't take very long, just a couple of minutes. But I kind of wrestled this week with, with some thoughts, like the confusion that good works creates for the church. Like understanding grace, freedom, that God loves us perfectly in Christ apart from works. So where, where do works play a role in our life? So we got to deal with the confusion and then we want to clear it up. Like what is the function? What is the role of these good works? Why do we do them? And what do we do? So that's the, the picture of what we're going to do. But let's start with verse eight. Let's pray and then ask God to, to help us and we'll see what it, the text says. Let's start by reading verse eight. And Paul says, the saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things so that those who who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Let's pray. God, we've um, rung this bell for weeks now about what the gospel does. 
and how your grace saves and changes a people. God, my prayer is that you uh, help me say what you said. Prevent me from saying anything that isn't your heart. I pray that your people, all of us, would be leaning into this transformation idea, this thought of how Jesus came to make and fashion for himself a people, and I pray that we would listen closely as his people, and so therefore uh, leave today to replicate Jesus, not just be okay with being saved. God, we need your help. The Holy Spirit's at work. We trust that. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, let's pick it up. First phrase, the, the, tr- the saying is, trustworthy. The word saying um, is the word intelligence. It's interesting when Paul brings this up, the saying, this intelligent thought, this worthy of belief thought, he says, is what we should insist on or what Titus should insist on. So what's the, what's this intelligent, trustworthy thought? It is what he has just said in verses four to seven. So let's remind ourselves of what is so true and so always helpful. Here's what he says, verse four. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, Jesus did, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Here's what Paul says. The most intelligent, the most logical, most worthy of your faith, most worthy of your life truth you have ever heard is this truth, that Jesus came and he lived and he died and he died in your place, church. And he did it because of mercy, a free, free gift. In spite of you, you could do nothing to change your course. He did it all because of his affections for you. And he did it according to this text by giving us life in the Holy Spirit. That's how he does it. It's interesting to me, the word that he uses here, regeneration, literally read out in the text would be Genesis again. So if that paints a picture for you, Genesis, right? The beginning of everything, there was nothing and God said, let there be. If you want a picture of the human heart before salvation, there was nothing. In fact, that fits perfectly with what the gospel writers say over and over again about our condition. We are dead in our transgressions and sins. Dead people don't respond to any truth. We're not won over to the things of God. We don't have our minds set on the kingdom whatsoever. We are totally unresponsive and dead. Genesis again, regeneration. Holy Spirit comes and wakes us up, gives us life that we never had before. God created new life in dead sinners through the Holy Spirit. And that is the trustworthy truth that Paul tells Titus to remind the church and insist on, in fact. In fact, the word, the phrase insist on is kind of more emphatic than just kind of make certain they know it. It's like stand firm here, hold the line here, fight for this here, this truth that God raises and resurrects spiritually dead people. That's the line to hold. So, and here's why Paul wants Titus to insist on that truth. You see it in the middle of verse 8. So that, so that those who have believed in God may be careful. The word careful is cautious attention. Like, like really detailed focus, making certain you know what you're dealing with. Cautious attention. Devote yourself. That, that word has the idea of standing before. We use this idea of it's in first place. Stand before. So this is how Paul tells Titus to tell the church to respond to good works. Careful attention, making it first place in your life to commit yourself to these things based on the gospel. 
That, in essence, is what he says, to devote themselves to good works, this idea of quality and character, the things you do and why you do it is what Paul is talking about here. And he gives us a really great motivator. Here's why. Because these good works are excellent and they're profitable for people, useful, advantageous, good for you and good for other people. Now, that is all that verse 8 says. But there's so much like potential um, possibility for confusion when it comes to understanding grace alone and Christ alone by faith alone and then understanding where works come in and why God would require those, insist these things. So I thought we'd take a few minutes and deal with the confusion that might come of good works. Let me give you a a list of these things. I think I got eight of them. Um, Again, it's not an exhaustive list, but it might help describe what you feel or what you think at times. Here's a confusion of good works that some people think that they earn your place with God. Now, here's how you know that. Every religion in the world, other than Orthodox Christianity, what we've just talked about, every religion, I don't care what branch or what God or what you think, everyone has as its foundation, fix your problem. You fix your problem. You believe enough, do enough. Go, go on mission, add these things, believe, the, just, just do these things and you're going to be okay with God. It's up to you. God's done what he's done, now you've got to keep up, okay? By the way, not only is that what religion says, it inclines to the natural human heart, isn't it? That's what we'd prefer. Like every one of us in our instincts would say, I'd like to make myself earn this. I, I, I want to feel good. I want to compare myself to other people. I want to try so that fits, it fits with us. I don't know if you guys uh, stay up late on Saturday night like I do. Um, I went to bed at eight, I was kidding. Um, I was watching the football life on NFL Channel last night, Ken Stabler's story, I don't know if you saw this, but he, Ken has a pretty wild reputation, lived a crazy life, but at the end of his life, this is what they said of him, he was sitting at the beach in a lawn chair with his coffee, and he was contemplating God, which is interesting to me that everyone ends up there some hour fashion. He was contemplating God, and he told his agent that he figured it out, like what I'm supposed to do with God. And his conclusion was that as long as he's aware, just aware of God, then he'll be okay. Like what God required from him was some sense of recognition, um, but not some sense of faith. I I don't accuse him any more than anybody else. We all, without help, pick options. Here's what we have said over and over again. For fiber grace, you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. This salvation comes through faith that you did not conjure up on your own. God gave it to you. It's a work of him. This is what it says, Paul says in Galatians 2, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one, no one will be justified. There isn't a list out there that will merit God's attention. That's what we say. So if there's a confusion, most people, without spiritual help, will conclude that These things that I do will earn my place with God, which isn't true. Here's the second confusion. Good works are somehow the Holy Spirit's job, and I have nothing to do with them. Okay, we're going to get to this in a little bit, but here's what the Scriptures say. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we, we should walk in them. Hebrews 13, the writer says, do not neglect the good 
and to share what you have for such sacrifices. Those sacrifices are pleasing to God. Don't grow weary in doing good, for in due season you will, not, you will reap a reward. Let us consider how to stir one another up in love and good deeds, right? That's what the text tells us about our activities in it. Here's another confusion. Good works are irrelevant. So this comes from someone who grasps a little bit of the truth of the gospel, and here's how it goes. If God saves us apart from works, if I really believe that, and I also believe that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is a Romans Paul-defended doctrine, then it's obvious, isn't it, that really these works have nothing to do with my life whatsoever. They really don't matter. That is not true, and I'm going to tell you in just a little bit where good works fit in a believer's life, okay? Here's another confusion, that good works are subjective. In other words, um, your good work is yours and mine is mine. They don't have to look the same. God has no standard for good works, that we can just do what we want. In a culture, by the way, no surprise to you, certainly you know, that has lost its mind on what truth is. So here's truth now. Truth is only defined by how you feel. Nothing absolute, nothing, no standard whatsoever. So the church is starting to embrace a little bit of this idea that my feelings now trump how and what God has said. If you want to explain the craziness in the church, let me look at the world. It comes because people have now made this thing called good work subjective. Like God doesn't have a standard for us to live. That's, that's another confusion. Here, here's one that good works are a private matter. They're your business personal. But if that's you, if you feel that way about, about good works, then you have no concept of the corporate nature of good works, that God has saved us and transforms us to good works that bless others. It is the replication of Jesus who came to not be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom. When we live like Jesus, we are caring for others. So if you think good works are just about you, nobody else, then you're missing the gospel point. The good works are for others. Here's another confusion. It possibly ends up more like a question. Like if you really start to unpack the gospel, and I get how everyone maybe goes through this little stop, this rest stop along the way of truth, you might ask the question, well, do good works actually ever really please God? Like how do they please God? So things might go in your mind like this. After all, isn't God fully satisfied with the sacrifice of Jesus given to me? Doesn't God view me through Christ? Isn't, aren't I positionally already holy as I could possibly be in Christ? Haven't I received the righteous robes of Jesus? How can God be any more or less pleased with me if he's seeing me through Jesus? Make sense? Is that a reasonable question to ask? Okay. I think parental language helps us understand exactly what it means for God to experience pleasure in our actions. Um, I've got four sons. You all have kids. This is how I know. I think I know almost every parent feels. I love my kids, period. No conditions. I have never once suggested that if they hold this certain kind of behavior that I will love them more, or if they let it go, I'll love them less. They all look like me, right, to their detriment, right? They, they are just who they are. I love them, I love them, I love them. I, I enjoy their successes. I enjoy their joys. I, I love that stuff. But they could. They could decide to be knuckleheads, couldn't they? And do something that really hurts them. And when they make that decision, what do I experience? What do they experience? A loss of joy or a loss of pleasure. Right? Because here's what I want for them, just like you want for your kids as a parent. I want their happiness. 
I want them to love life and I want them to be full of joy. And I also know how God defines what that looks like. And so if they make decisions not in line with that, I feel sad, not because they're going to jeopardize their relationship with me or I'm going to walk away from my affections or the inheritance or whatever that might be. It's because they have lost, we have lost this mutual pleasure. Their peace in the moment and my joy in them. That whole idea of this. So let me look at it from this angle and maybe you'll understand it. Some would say, some deal with this aspect of God, that when we don't live as we should, he is now disappointed in us. Well, I want you to kind of work that logically through in your mind. For God to experience disappointment in you means he's learning something about you he didn't already know, which is not possible. When Jesus died, every bit of your sin, before you ever were, the sin that you have committed, committing, and going to commit, all of it was punished in Christ. God is fully satisfied for everything. But here's the reality of this, this experience When we choose something other than the good that God has for us to walk in, God is sad for us, not towards us. Do you understand the difference? It's like a grumpy teacher who can't stand you in their classroom versus a parent goes, it's so much easier over here, and you'll be so much happier over here. It's a sad for, not a sad towards. Make sense? Okay. Here's another confusion. And this is more felt than thought, but it is this idea that we are, works are paying back God. We say, we understand, salvation isn't by works. But God, when you've done this amazing thing, I just feel this sense of trying to balance the scales. We don't cognitively think of that. We don't theologically think of that. We just feel it. We just feel that way. Like, I want to I balance the scales, God. You've done this. I want to do that. There's another confusion, and that is um, that some people have defined good works as a bullseye on a target. By that I mean there, there is only one thing called good works. That's when every perfect action is aligned with perfect motive right there. That, that's a good work. Everything else is, is not worth it, right? It's a, it's a huge pressure, by the way, on the church. It's like a, a pixel on a giant picture map. So let me help you, at least in my mind. It helps me. Maybe it won't help you. I don't know. But this is how I see it. There are, there are two extremes to that idea of hitting the target. Over here on the left, let's say, there is the self-disciplined types, the hardworking types, the people who love, love rules. And based on your efforts and hard work, you can learn more things so knowledge is your friend and behavior is your friend and experience is your friend. You just happen to be more disciplined. You're over here. And, and you're working on these things because you can work on these things, but you're hoping God takes note of how hard you're working on these things. Your motives aren't necessarily anything more than you, right? You find your joy and you find your peace in yourself because of what you can offer good works. Over here is the other extreme. On the far end of this is the people who are happy to be saved but are not at all into transformation, <laughs> Right? I, I want the fire insurance, but I don't want any kind of the transfer. I don't want to become like Jesus. Or they just don't consider that being a part of salvation. Now, I'm creating two extremes to make a point. Everybody in this room is on this line between self-effort and indifference. Here's what happens. Here's what God does through time, through the word, through the Holy Spirit, through God's people. He's moving all of us to the center. 
You might be more happy in you than you should be, and your motives aren't the glory of God. The motives are you and how proud you are. And over here, you're indifferent to yourself, and your life doesn't show any signs of conversion. You're just happy you're saved. Well, God's moving you this way because you need to become more committed to having your life look like Jesus. You need to be more committed to dependence on Jesus and not yourself. That makes sense? Everyone's moving to this point, and all those moves are the good work of God, right? Everyone here is becoming like that. Wrong motives, wrong actions, all being transformed. Okay, we have a few minutes left, so let me deal with this. Let's clarify good works for a second. Let's answer some questions. What's the, what's the role of good works? I'm saved apart from works. They don't have any effect on my relationship with God. So what is the role that they serve? Here's, here's a couple thoughts. Good works are a part, a part of how our assurance grows, okay? Here's what Jesus said in Matthew 12, a tree is known by its fruit, okay? How do you know what kind of plant you are? How do you know if you're a Christian? Not how are you a Christian, how do you know you're a Christian? This thing called assurance is this thing we don't like to talk about, and that's called feelings. I'm saved by the grace of God, period. But how you and I experience the assurance of that is based on how I live. I'm not either one day or next a Christian or not a Christian based on those things, but I am more assured. If you've ever read it, you should read it if you haven't. First John deals with this issue of assurance. That's what his whole text is about. And here's what he says over and over again. This is how we know that we belong to the truth. And he says it's obedience. This is not how you are. This is how you know. So this whole idea of like, how do I feel this sense of belonging? Well, when you're aligned with his will. Okay? That's what he says. Good works are a byproduct of a conversion, a new birth. And we can see it in our life as God transforms us step by step. Here's another role that good works plays. Good works are a part of the proof of his ownership. Now, here's what the text tells us, the writer in Hebrews chapter 11, that without faith it's impossible to please God. In Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, it says, Paul makes it really clear, that faith comes through the spirit that God put his stamp, his seal, his title on us. We belong to him, how? Through the spirit of God. And the Spirit of God produces these things that please him. That's how this ownership thing works itself out. Spirit living in me, Spirit conjuring this work in me, this bringing about this pleasure to God. Here's the third kind of reality to um, the role of good works. Good works are an expression of love. They just are towards the one who loves the most. Um, I'm a feeler. I tried to tell somebody this week that, that in spite of my crusty exterior, okay, I feel deeply, like I get pretty emotional about stuff, and I'm okay with that, right, I'm secure in my manliness, but, but here's the deal, I can't help myself, if I feel, if I feel like I love somebody, it's arms out, I got to tell them, I got to show them, and uh, I think there's a natural, spiritual, natural reaction to when the, when the gospel dawns on a heart, when you know what you've been saved from, when you know the damage you've done to your life and others' lives where you can just say, ah, God, I just thank you. And I think the reality of good works is a way for us to just express our affections for God, not to earn it, but just to say I love you. Here's another one. Good works are one of the ways God blesses the world and other people. Like you are to be the hands and feet of Jesus. You are to be the representation of Jesus. So how do people know Jesus? How do people feel his touch? How do people see this gospel lived out? Us. 
doing good things in our world. When we're in an election year and the world wants to freak out. And you're no different. The church rests. If there's anything in our moment today that we need to specialize in, it is the sovereignty of God over the crazy. God knows what he's doing, right? That's one of the many things that we need to trust in. So good works are a way that God blesses the world and other people. Now, let's answer another question. What do they look like? What, what is a good work? What is it supposed to look like? Here's the obvious. It needs to be consistent with the word of God. The scriptures define them. It is particular. It is not subjective. Your good works aren't limited to you. Good works, as God defines them, according to the text, is clear to all because it's defined in, in the scriptures. They are consistent with the word of God. They are done in faith, according to the scriptures of Romans 14. Whatever doesn't proceed from faith is sin. So it's got to come from faith. I believe that God has called me to these things. They are done for the glory of God. And we know this passage, Paul says to the church in Corinth, whatever you do, do it all to the what? Glory, glory of God. Now, when Jesus was confronting religion in his day, and he's dealing with the representation of religion, the epitome of that, he was talking to the Pharisees. These men specialized at work, externals. And, and watch this. This is where the glory of God captures your motives. So here's what he confronts the Pharisees with. You who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. Like, you're okay with people seeing the outside and saying you're good, but God knows exactly where it's coming from. He knows the secrets you keep, and he knows the compass. He knows the, the soul of a man, okay? And this is what he says. For what is exalted among men, the outside, the externals, the performances, the things that aren't motivated from a real place, is an abomination in the sight of God. So if you're confused and think good works is just, hey, just rally the outside, well, God's measuring everything. And what he hates, an abomination, is the game. Pretending to be something you're not. Calling yourself a follower of Christ, a committed disciple, means a follower. And your life has all these train wrecks all over the place. And it's not okay just to say that no one calls you on it because here the Pharisees had everyone convinced. God called them on it. And it's an abomination to him. Here, here's another um, look of good works. They are motivated by love. John 14, if you love me, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll do that. So let's try to answer two more questions. What's the source of good works? Where does this come from? How does this happen in our life? Here's the first one. God is the source. Philippians 2.13. It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Who works in us? Who works in us? There you go. God works in us. And he works in us in union with Jesus. That's the second one. John chapter 15. Jesus said this. We're very familiar with this kind of verbiage and this kind of picture. Abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Jesus said, listen, you can't do any fruit. There can't be any good unless you're in me. So God is the source. We are abiding or are in union with Jesus, and faith is, is where it comes from. James 2, some will say you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Faith apart from works is what? 
dead or useless. Faith. God, in union with Jesus and faith, here's the last one, grace. We've learned it multiple times in this text, but just to remind you in Titus chapter 2, verses 11, and then skipping to 14, for the grace of God has appeared. That's what's brought salvation. Verse 14, and to purify himself of people who are zealous for good works. Grace, grace is the driving motivator behind good works. God authors it. Union with Jesus is his power. Faith is its function, and, and grace is, is the motive. So let me answer one more question, then I've got a couple to ask you. Why are good works necessary? Like, what, what is the point? Paul gives us the imperative to devote ourselves to them, like put them first place. In fact, that's what he says. Here's a couple of thoughts. God ordained it. <laughs> I mean, I suppose if you ever want to, you know, that kills the conversation right there. That's pretty much it. Because God said so. I mean, this is not a good parenting technique, but it's a great one when it comes to spiritual issues as far as God's concerned. It's enough that God is sovereign, is it not, church? He ordained it. This is what we know. This is what the text says in Ephesians 2. Now, this is the, this is the kind of follow-up so what to this wonderful passage we all celebrate. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, not by works, so no one can boast. We love that. It's all God. God does it all. We get salvation. This is what he says in verse 10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Saved and changed. Does that make sense? Saved and transformed. God ordained it. Let me tell you why else this is necessary. Good works are good for us. Ephesians, I mean, Titus 3 verse 8 made it very clear. Excellent and profitable, right? Listen to what Peter says. Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. That's a pretty good guarantee. You'll never fall. According, according to Peter, this is why it's good for you. If you practice these things, stability, spiritual strength and stability. And we also know this thing is good for others, right? We're supposed to not only look out for our own interests, but the interests of others, having this mind among ourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. We live like Christ for the sake and the blessing of the world around us. That's why we live. We are let our light shine according to Jesus in such a way that they can see the good deeds and glorify who? Our Father in heaven, right? So this thing is good for us, and it's good for the world. But, but let me deal with what I think is an obvious tension because I felt it. So um, good works do have an impact on everyone, but there's a nuance to this idea of profitable that I, I feel like we need to clear up just a little bit. If you're like me and you hear good works are good for you, you might think like this, oh good, it's broccoli. <laughs> right? Good, good for me. Um, I've been trying to get in shape recently and work out and... <laughs> Eat better, and I'm not even smart enough to know how to eat better, so I just use starvation. So that, that's my <laughs> dieting technique, if you want to know. Anyway, but I was talking to Tyler in the office last week, and, and uh, Tyler knows more about everything than I'll know about anything. So he said, hey, you should try kale shakes, okay? And uh, you're already moaning and groaning. I haven't tried them. It just, just sounded stupid. That's all I'm saying. Um, <laughs> Here's what I thought as soon as you said it. Well, I'm going to have to take your word on it because it sounds miserable, right? It just sounds miserable. 
And, and here's what I instinctively thought after concluding that it sounds miserable. Well, then it's got to be good for me. <laughs> do you not do that? Like, oh, it's going to be painful. It's going to be good for me. It's going to taste terrible. It's going to be good for me. Everyone kind of has that negative thought. And so you can read this passage, oh, this excellent good work we're supposed to walk in is profitable. Ugh. Broccoli, kale shake, but I got to do it. That's, that's what it sounds like, okay? That's exactly how most people interpret what Paul said here. But that's not the idea at all, what Paul's saying. Here's how I want you to think about it. As opposed to saying this is good for you, think it's good to you. That's what Paul means here. This, this excellent good work that we are to walk in through the power of the Spirit because God has resurrected a people is good to us, is good to us. In other words, when God's people are committing themselves to loving good deeds, watch the outcome. Joy, not misery. Anybody in here want to have joy? This joy is a good expression in spite of circumstances of something deep, deep, deep down that doesn't kind of ebb and flow with circumstances. Isn't that what we all are looking for? Well, that's what, that's what the gospel promises people who live in line of this transformative work that God's doing. Joy is the outcome, not misery. That's what he says. Paul, Paul made it very clear that God created us again, Genesis again, in Christ by the power of the Spirit. And because he's made us alive and he's given us new hearts and new passions and new desires, he knows exactly what will make that new heart happy. He knows exactly what it will do. Um, we have a lot of instruments around the stage this morning, but a, a guitar was made by a, a luthier. A luthier builds stringed instruments. And he has a design, I suppose, when they sit down, they take the wood and they fashion the bracing and they string the strings. And he has a thought. This is, this is what it's going to do, and this is how it's going to do it the best. And a musician picks it up, and he, he chords the strings however he wants because he knows that's how it's going to resonate in its Sweet spot. That's what you do. Now, I could go grab that guitar and I pull it over here and use it as a stool. I could sit on it, I suppose. But it's not its sweet spot. You know what the church's sweet spot is? Good works. That's when we are aligned with what God has created in us to do and to be. And when we're doing it and there's joy and there's a resonance to our life and to the reputation of the church, it's the sweet spot. So can I ask you a couple questions before we leave here? These are personal assessment questions. How would you define your salvation? I know that sounds pretty broad, but I'm thinking one particular thought, really. Is salvation for you simply forgiveness and heaven? Is that salvation? Or is your salvation Genesis again? Is it transformation? Is it new life? Because that is the definition of salvation. Well, do we get forgiveness? Absolutely. Is heaven our future? Absolutely. But transformation in life is salvation. And so if you're, if you're considering it something just pieces of the story and not the total story, then I can get why good works wouldn't matter to you and why maybe your life has all the remnants of that. Maybe you need to reconsider what God means by salvation. Now, here's one last question. How would you describe your approach to good works? Here's what Paul tells Titus to stand firm in, to guard, right? Careful 
devotion. First place, commitment. Is that how you define this idea of good works? Or would you look at your life and go, no, if I'm really honest, I'm sloppy. In fact, I don't think about it too much. Well, then hear the call. Hear the call of the gospel. The winsome nature of the Holy Spirit, not just telling you that you're loved much by God, but that God is so into you that he has promised not only to start the work, but he's promised to finish the work that he started. Amen, church? Let's pray together. God, I thank you for the gospel that is our hope. I thank you that it does save us, clearly brings us into relationship with you that cannot be in jeopardy, but also this salvation that is about changing us into the image of our dear Savior, Jesus. God, we submit our lives to you. We pray that you open us up to your teaching and your truth and make us like him more every day. As we are on this line from our abilities and our indifference, God, move us towards Jesus, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.